Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, and welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Lisa Fine, and Mary Shirley. Today's guest is somebody who I think about as a GGIC, a great guy in compliance. Today, we have Adam Belfer, who's the Vice President and General Counsel for Corporate Compliance and Vice President for Global Risk Management at Bridgestone. So kind of a handful of uh, mouth out there. And he's based in Nashville. He's originally from Scotland, which you're going to hear from his voice. He came to the U.S. and then he stayed and he became a part of the compliance community, which we'll talk about. You know, probably the most important thing to mention about Adam is he's one of the recent awardee, awardees of a wiki for his Sunday morning compliance tips, which is now a weekly column with Corporate Compliance Insights, who's also our producer. Another thing that's great about um, Adam, you'll hear more about it, he's also a dad of four. Um, and a very avid runner and just an all-around compliance leader and wonderful person. So thank you so much for joining us. And let's talk a little bit about your journey to where you are now. Yeah, thank you so much, Lisa. I, I, I'm curious, you know, about the the, the, the wiki that I won for the, the Sunday morning tips. I'm like, is there anybody else posting on Sunday mornings? Like, was there was there other people or was that I, I won by default of it being Sunday mornings? Well, no, we have, I'll just say, it wasn't, we didn't beat anybody else in the Sunday morning tips, but it was for one of the great innovations that came on this year. And there were some others that got that. So it's a, it's a very highly selective process, as you'll see, which comes up with, you know, we come up with different topics whenever we hit a landmark episode. So every if it's 50 or 100, that's our annual wikis, but they are highly sought after. They, they are. I'm, 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 of course, teasing Lisa. I think, you know, I know each other and we like to kind of have fun, but no, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I do genuinely appreciate, it. I think what you're doing, you and Mary do, it's just absolutely wonderful. You build a community, you bring people together, it really just makes a difference. So, so thank you. Well, we're thrilled that you are a part of this community and really a great supporter of women in compliance and of diversity. And so these are all things we'll talk a little bit about. But before we do that, for, you know, for those of you who can't hear your Scottish accent, then uh, you're probably in Scotland. But um, if you could just talk to us a little bit about how you got to compliance and, you know, your path to being a U.S. compliance officer as well. Sure, sure. Happy to happy to share a little bit about that. And and I think a lot of my journey, um, it's been it's been like a lot of luck, I'd say, is is, is definitely helped. And and certainly, um, you know, talking to community like you know just generosity from other people along the way. I didn't get here by myself, and I think that's something that as time goes on, I appreciate that more and more. Um, so I was born and raised in Scotland. You know, some people hear the accent more so that, than than others, but it's still uh, it's still there. I'll say a random word every now and then that'll throw throw people off. Um, but I went to law school there. You know, I went to the uh, the University of Dundee. Um, some some frankly just wonderful professors there just really got me inspired. You know, interested in the legal profession, um, and also the chance um, that was back when the uh, the UK was still part of the EU. Um, they have this program called the the Erasmus Exchange. So I got to go spend a year in the Netherlands at the, the University of Leiden. Um, you know, I'm a big believer. You know, when you're when you're younger, um, you know, if you've got the chance to to travel and to explore the world, it's it's just a great thing to do. So I really, you know, got to got to learn. You know, both in the classroom and, and outside the classroom as well. When I went to to, to Leiden. Um, and then after Dundee, um, you know, I got the chance to come to the U.S. 
Um, you know, I had a job lined up in Scotland for, for a great law firm there, was, was excited about that. Um, but I had the chance to come over here for, for one year to study for my master's degree. Um, and, and knowing that I was going back to Scotland um, at a job lined up, I was like, well, I'm going to take classes that are just just going to broaden my intellectual horizons. And so, um, you know, I later became a, a corporate attorney in the U.S., but, you know, taking courses such as contemporary Islamic legal thought, you know, reproductive rights in the Supreme Court, just amazing things, right? I didn't use them in private practice when I was in New York, but just, you know, interesting things to, 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 to read about and to, to learn. Um, and then I stayed for a second year. I was kind of figuring out what was I going to do um, at that point, I knew I didn't want to go back to, to Scotland. I wanted to be here in the U.S. That was one of my, my long-term uh, goals. So I stuck around, um, spent a second year at the, uh, the, the university I was at here, um, helping one of the professors. Uh, she was writing a, a chapter for a book about domestic violence and female-female uh, alliances in Bonobos. So it was just this really interesting, you know, legal uh, research, you know, looking at some, some anthropological work as well. It was incredible just to look into. Um, and also stumbled into a job for a year, um, a job really I had absolutely no right, you know, being in, but I worked for a negotiation uh, training company. And so I got to travel the world, um, you know, talking to people about, you know, how to negotiate. And, and I learned a lot more that year than I, I taught anyone else. Um, also had a, a wonderful um, boss back then, um, Shazad, and he, he taught me something I didn't really understand at the time, but as, as time has gone past, it's, it's resonated with me a lot more, particularly, I think, in ethics and compliance. It's just, you know, you really, you, you can't teach adults, right? You can really only um, help adults learn. And so, I, you know, I, that's something that I think about a lot now and really when I approach ethics and compliance, I'm like, well, well how, do I, how do I help people learn rather than just trying to simply teach them what they need to know? Um, and so after that, I, 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 I sold out. Um, I'm kidding, of course, but I went to New York. I worked for, for two big law firms. Um, you know, great experience. Got to work in some big transactions. Um, I probably started working as an attorney maybe a little bit too young. Um, I, I started, I was probably around 22, maybe 23 when I, when I first started working at, uh, at, at, at big law firms as an attorney. Um, probably would have been better for me, I think, if I maybe waited a little bit longer. I think there's some attorneys who can really practice and excel at such a young age. I probably needed a few more years to, to frankly grow up a little bit and mature and learn how to, to think a little bit more. Um, but I, I, as much as I appreciated the, the opportunities there, I, I also knew that, you know, working at a big law firm wasn't for me, right? The, 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 the hours, um, this, the, the nature of the work as well wasn't really what I wanted to do. Um, and so at, at, at that time, there were a few other things going on in my life. You know, one of them was my, my mom, actually, she, she passed away from pancreatic cancer, um, you know, she passed at, at too young of an age, and it, it really got me thinking, look, life is, is, is short, right? You know, we really should enjoy our, our limited time um, that we, we have. Um, I actually got some, some great advice from, it was actually my mom's cousin, um, Bob, and, and, and he shared a, 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 an expression, um, you know, a ship in the harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are made for. And I, I just, I really like that. I kind of really took that to heart because I'm like, I can play it safe, right? I can stay in this job where... Um, candidly, I, I don't want to sound disrespectful of my, my, my opportunities at the time and my colleagues, but I, I wasn't that happy with it, right? It wasn't really what I, I wanted to do. So 
I, I took a risk. Actually, I took uh, some, some time off. I took a few months. Um, I've been living in New York at that time for, for, for many years, about seven, maybe eight years. I hadn't really enjoyed the city, right? I was just working all the time. So it was, it was great to actually, you know, be able to go and explore the city or do things or, or go and see different, uh, different things. So it was really um, a lot of fun. Um, but then after a period of time, I started to get a little bit restless and Michelle, my wife, you know, was like, you need to get back into doing something. And, and, and she's an attorney as well. Um, so we, we, we decided we were going to leave New York City and, and it was either uh, we we're going to go to Austin, um, you know, she's from Texas originally, or we we're going to move to Nashville. She, she went to, to Vanderbilt for college. I had a preference actually for Austin. I just, I like Austin more for some reason. And then this opportunity came up at Bridgestone um, and I just, I was really impressed. I really liked the people that I met with. I thought their, their whole approach was just, uh, was just really, uh, it just, it, 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 it struck a chord with me. Um, and I'd only been to Nashville once before I'd interviewed with Bridgestone. I'd been here for a weekend and I, I bought my cowboy boots to my first visit uh, here and never bought cowboy boots again. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it was, uh, it was kind of, it was like, we're going to move there. We're going to do this. And I have to tell you, joining Bridgestone, it's been about eight and a half years now and living in Nashville, um, you know, definitely uh, just worked out so well, incredibly happy to be here. So. Yeah. Um, that's that's a little bit about my 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 journey uh, so far. Well, it's interesting as as you're talking about different aspects of it. First of all, some of the experiences of uh, are similar to a lot of women in terms of the lack of work life balance, and women often you know think about you know, they think about think about that sooner than men. I'm not I want to overly stereotype it, um, and also the idea of all these different things. I, I think it's similar to me. I also started in a big law firm years ago, and I learned a lot. And I saw great relationships there. But it wasn't something I wanted to do forever. But both the training and some of the other things and, and, and the breaks I took in between have really helped form me and what I do in ethics and compliance. And it sounds like, you know, that's, you know, a significant thing for you as well. I think it, I think it definitely has. I think there's, there's so many, you know, we often think about learning as taking place in, in the classroom. Um, and I, I like the, you know, the Center for Creative Leadership, but they talk about the 70-20-10 model where really 10% of your learning takes place in the classroom, but then, you know, 20% is coaching. And then just that other 70% is just you learn through experiencing. And I think that's where, um, for, for me, sometimes, you know, I'll learn things in the moment. There's other times where I feel like some of the most powerful lessons for me in my career, which I apply to ethics and compliance now, it's, it probably doesn't speak too highly of me, but it's like years later, I'm like, oh, I finally get that point, right? Or it's when, when knowledge turns into to really understanding and I'm like, okay, now I really, I see that I can kind of value that lesson. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, there's definitely been a lot of, a lot of helpful things uh, across the years. Yeah. Well, one of the other things that's always, you know, in our conversations and even, especially now this month, um, because it's June and we're in the midst of Pride Month right now. And, you know, you've, we've talked a lot about both your commitment to diversity and you know, for women and for others. And I've also noticed that um, how do, I want to ask a couple of questions about that. But first is, you know, can you talk about how diversity impacts your work in compliance and now as you're moving more into the global risk management um, area? Yeah, so I, I've been very lucky. I mean, I think from my, my background, I've had the chance to, 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 to live in different places. Um, and so moving into to, to global risk management, um, you know, previously I've been working uh, as, as, as general counsel for, for Latin America, which is an, an amazing experience to see, you know, the world from a different lens, a different perspective. Um, but also for compliance, I, I chair our, our global compliance working group. So, you know, we talk about compliance from really a global perspective, you know, what works 
One needs to be the global standard, one needs to be you know, globally aligned, but with some flexibility. And then in terms of how it's implemented, and then what should we really leave to the, to the particular regions? Um, but but I, I really do enjoy that, right? I think it's uh, you know, wonderful to work with people from different parts of the world, to travel to places, a lot of places I haven't been, and I, I hope to visit in the future. But it's 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 fun. It's it's eye opening. Um, you know, you get to see how life is different for other people. But but I also enjoy it because it it allows me to you know see the similarities or to 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 reflect on frankly my own biases or my experience and, and how I see the world. And I think that broadens it. Um, but definitely when it comes to diversity, it, it, it is such a key topic and it, it has been for a long time. It's getting a lot more attention now, but it's been, it's not as if it's just becoming important now, but it, it has been for such a long time, just hasn't been talked about or really, I think, given the, the focus it needs. Um, but, but, but people are people are individuals. And I, I think as you know, we like to use labels, right? We almost we seem to have a need to, you know, sort people very quickly and use different labels. So, you know, you're from this country, you know, you're you're a particular age, gender, sex, religion, political view, whatever it is at all. But, but people, they're not labels. Um, and so simply because you're given a particular label doesn't mean that's who you are. Um, and so for me, you know, I'm 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 from the UK originally. But, but I've always felt this affinity for the US and I feel like I belong in the US and you know, I've been fortunate to come here and, and become a citizen. And so I think to me, you know, diversity is about, it's about letting people you know, define who they are. Um, you know, I often tell my, 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 my kids, uh, I probably give them more life advice than they, they want or need, especially coming from me. But I, I try to tell them like, you know, be kind and be yourself. Like those are you know, two of the easiest things uh, to, to, to be, but sometimes they're the, the hardest things to, to really express. Yeah. Um, and one of my neighbors last year, she, she shared this great quote, it really you know, struck a chord with me. Um, it was from a filmmaker. Her name um, uh, is it's, it's Lisa Valencia Svensson. I think I pronounced her name correctly. Um, and and the, 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 the quote that she made, I think she made it like 10 years ago and she used it again in a, a speech a couple of years ago. It's, it's who is telling whose story to whom and why. And I, I, I like that because it's like, you know, what's your story? Um, you know, how do we amplify, support the stories of different people um, to tell their stories? Um, and so it's, you know, we almost like don't need to travel the world, right? To, to hear different stories. They're, they're, they're right here in our own communities, whether it's DC or Nashville or wherever you are, it's just amplifying and giving a platform for, for other people to, to, to share who they are. Um, so I think it's, uh, it is such an important thing. And I, I do think as well in ethics and compliance, the more we can do to support diversity and think about it is going to be an important thing. Well, I think that that actually dovetails well into my next question for you, because as we're talking about telling stories and talking about that, one of the things you talk, you talk about a lot, and I think it's part of your story and what we should all have as part of our story is ethics and compliance for humans. So what is that? Yeah, it's, it's a, I think at times people are like ethics and compliance for humans, like as opposed to what, like who else would it be for? Um, but but the, the, the reason I, I, I like talking about ethics and compliance for, 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 for humans, I think most people in corporate America or wherever people are located, right? They're human. I'm just, they're, they're human. They, they, they are. Even, even lawyers at big law firms or, or former lawyers in big law firms, we are human as well. Um, but, but, but I think most people can understand, right? Ethics and compliance is an incredibly important area. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of people can find that ethics and compliance, it can seem a little bit scary, maybe a little bit abstract. 
And so we know it's important, but what really is it and what should we be doing? Um, and so I, I'm, I'm certainly no game theory expert at all, but I've, I've, I've been kind of playing with the basics of game theory over the last couple of years. And, you know, there's a, an acronym that I think kind of sums it up well. It's, it's PARTS, P-A-R-T-S. And so it's players added value, rules, tactics, and scope. I think if you only see ethics and compliance through a rules lens, then you're, you're, you're really missing out. And so the way that I like to explain it is um, continuing like game theory, right? You know, think about sports, right? All sports have rules, but sports are about so much more than just the rules, right? The rules are there to, to help the game be played competitively, um, safely for, for the benefit of, of the different stakeholders. And, and the stakeholders, it's more than just the referees and the umpires, right? It's the, it's the fans, it's the players, it's other people as well. I think the same is true with ethics and compliance, right? The rules are absolutely important, but, but they are not the purpose of ethics and compliance, right? They are how we help people be compliant, how we help them be ethical. To me, I think ethics and compliance, it's, it's, it's really about people, right? It's like, how do we help people um, who are often good intention, right? How do we help them do the right thing? And then how do we help other people not to be harmed by, by the behavior of others? Um, and so I think, you know, too often in ethics and compliance, I do think we only see um, we look at the, 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 the kind of the game um, or to kind of borrow Simon Sinek's terminology, it's like business is an infinite game. And we only look at it through this rules focused lens and, and we're really missing out. And I think you see that as well, like the stories that are being told, right? You look at the headlines, company X, you know, did this type of violation, they paid a fine. But, but, but who were the people that were harmed by that wrongdoing? Um, you know, when it comes to, to matters such as bribery, like people are harmed by bribery. It's not just the, the, the bad actors and the people that have did wrong. And so I think it kind of ties back to that, that quote by um, Lisa Valencia Svensson. It's like, whose story are we telling? Uh, to whom and why are we telling it? And, and, and maybe the last point I'll, I'll mention on this, uh, Lisa, you know, I, I, I defarced you um, a few years ago to hear um, Olga Pontes speak at the, it was one of the SCCE's conferences. It was the one I think it was, I think it was just, in, it was in DC or just outside of DC. And, and, and she, um, for anyone that doesn't know, she is the chief compliance officer. She might have a, a broader title, um, but she now works at Novanor, which was at the time Odebrecht, I'm pronouncing the, the company correctly. And she shared one slide that really stuck with me, um, which was the number of employees that they had. Um, and in 2014, before this scandal, they had about, about 168,000 employees. Fast forward four years, and they've less than 50,000 people. And, and you just think about that is the impact on, you know, all those people, their, their families. And there was a great article in the, the Guardian a few years ago where they interviewed one of their former employees. And you just saw the impact of him, you know, losing his job and that the branding, um, you know, he, he was struggling to find work. He was uh, not eating. He was depressed. He was worried about, you know, how was he going to support his then two-year-old kid? Um, so it's really, it's, it's about seeing and hearing, you know, those stories, those human stories and ethics and compliance. You can't get anyone excited about the FCPA, but when you tell human stories, it just makes it less scary, less abstract. So it's kind of my long way of saying that's really what I think it's about. The, it's the purpose of ethics and compliance is to, it's to help people. So how do we build programs that support people? Yeah, I think people, if they feel supported, are more likely to come ask you questions. And I, I most people want to do the right thing. And there's always a bad actor too, but if you make it harder for them to do it and easier to identify them, you're in a better place. I mean, nothing's perfect like that. Um, but yes, for humans, I love I love that the ethics and compliance because a lot of times we forget that there are the you know, can forget that there are people involved just trying to understand what we're talking about because we live in it every day too. So that human connection is really important. 
I think that's right. And you and I did, uh, we're, we're going to do another session on as well, you know, talking about um, policies for humans that humans won't hate, but it's even, how do you write policies? Is it, you know, is it, uh, like, who are the stakeholders of that policy? Are you making an employee uh, centric so people can understand it's actually going to be workable? Um, or are you just, you know, reiterating the law and telling people, look, here's all the reasons we're going to fire you, but we're not actually trying to help you. So I think it is just kind of putting that human side of it and really making sure that, that people are, you know, people are, are the stakeholders of the program. It's not just, you know, one, one, one stakeholder that we're trying to satisfy. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting too, I'm just going to pivot a little bit about that to talk about, you know, that, that working that way can build communities and we all try to do that. But also, you know, I think when I've thought about your, um, your Sunday tips um, and the Sunday morning compliance tips, it's interesting because not only is it a column, similar to some of the stuff we've done here at, at the podcast, you've built sort of a community. There are people who would just kind of will get, chime in in the discussion or will look at it on the weekends or mention it during the week. I don't know if that's something, you know, I never anticipated exactly the community we've ended up with here. I'm thrilled about it every day. I think it's fabulous. And now I see how it could have happened. I was wondering if, you know, you could talk about how you started doing this and sort of what you've seen grown and evolved. <laughs> I think, uh, I definitely wouldn't compare where I am with my weekly tips to uh, you know where you and Mary have taken great women in compliance. Maybe longer term, I'll, I'll, I'll get there with that. But uh, um, I feel like it was another thing. I mean, it's kind of like a pattern of my whole career where I've, I've, I've had luck and kind of stumbled into things. It wasn't really a long-term plan. I, I, I do believe if you want to learn something to teach. So it was, um, I forget how many years ago, um, I was like, well, well, let me see if I can do, I think it was like six weeks. I'm going to do like six weeks of posts. Um, and I, I started doing that. It just it started to get some engagement, and so I, I just it kind of became a habit. And then um, people started commenting on it. Or there was one week I I was on vacation, or I skipped it for whatever reason. Actually, some people mentioned to me like, "Oh, you didn't post on Sunday." I was like, "These were people who never like liked or commented on it." I was like, "Well, people are actually seeing it." Um, so yeah, it's 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 been it's been a lot of fun. You know, sometimes I get more engagement, and and, and you know, people like the comments. Other times, people don't. Um, either there's not the engagement, or, or people might disagree. But but I've enjoyed it. Probably, you know, one has challenged me to to kind of think about what what content can I put out there. Um, but also just the the people that I've actually had the chance to connect with, um, you know, through the tips or um, it's always great, frankly, for my ego when someone's like, oh, I really like your comment. But I probably learn a lot or probably learn the most when someone's like, I disagree or um, I see your point, but I think about it differently. So I really do enjoy that engagement. Um, most people, I think, have been wonderfully kind. I think I've only had one person over the years that I had to block because <laughs> their comments were, uh, <laughs> were not really what I was uh, um, uh, uh, not particularly kind. But uh, apart from that, it's just been, it's been wonderful. Right. wonderful There's constructive comments and discussions, and then there are trolls. That is a very good way of putting it, um, indeed. And so, uh, yeah, all for healthy debate. But once you start getting some comments, you're like, oh, I'll take a step back. I'm okay. Well, I remember when we started the podcast, I just thought about this. Um, we've literally been doing it two months. We had no idea what we were doing. Was, somebody went on iTunes, didn't make any comments, but gave us one star. So I was like, how could you dislike this this much to affirmatively go, like, what were you expecting? You know, this is like episode pounding number four. You know, what what did we do to you? <laughs> it was It's one of those things where you're kind of thinking, I just don't understand that you actually affirmatively went out of your way to, to do that. It took me a long time. You know, when I finally saw it, I'm like, oh, we have five ratings. 
four fives and a one. And then I was like, are there any reasons that we, anything we could do to improve? No, just somebody didn't like it. I just remember laughing about that. But I think the other reason I wanted to ask you a little bit about that is because you started this and it really has you know, become a, a calling card in some ways. So I was thinking to talk back about you, how can people use opportunities like that? And similar to what we do in Great Women in Compliance, you know, it's not like I started a podcast to figure out my next career opportunity or to network, but it's been a, a great consequence. How do you think people can identify projects that are good for them and be able to do that to build their career? Yeah, I, I think it's figuring out, you know, what do you enjoy doing, right? What do you have time to do as well? But then also not being, if it doesn't go well, right? You can always, unless you're investing so much money or time or you're, you're changing your job, you can probably fix it. But I remember actually it was the first time I spoke at a, a conference for ethics and compliance. Um, I, I, I'd helped, uh, I was on the planning committee for that conference. And, and I, a few weeks before was like, I, I don't belong on this panel. Like I look at the other panelists who were on there and was like, nah, I'm just, I'm, I'm gonna drag this down. Um, and so I, I ended up saying, like, like you're going to be better off without me being on it. And, and they actually pushed back and said, no, you're, you're going to be on this. Like, you, you should be. And I'm so glad that I, I did because I just, um, I doubted myself. I was like, I, I don't know if I'm going to be, if I'm going to enjoy this, if I'm going to be good at this. Do I have enough to share with other people? And so, you know, since then, as you know, Lisa, I don't, I don't stop talking about ethics and compliance. Probably went from <laughs> a, a lack of uh, confidence to uh, an excess of confidence and an ability to be quiet. Um, but I, I think I was glad to kind of push through that resistance, and 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 now I really enjoy. It. So I think I would just encourage someone like find out what's going to work for you, and also don't feel like you've got to be um, the expert in the room, right? You don't have to be the, the smartest person, but what is your value? What, what knowledge or information or experiences do you have that you can share with other people? I think once you see that other people will see that as well. Um, and so I think that's, uh, for me, I, I really enjoy, enjoy doing my little tips, uh, maybe writing some longer articles from time to time. I enjoy speaking as well. Um, those all work for me. And I think it's just finding what's going to What's going to give you joy? What's going to you know make you feel like you're contributing to the community? And it's it's going to be valuable as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. The other thing I think is to, to go back and think about what's genuine to you. Because if you're going in to do something like that or for us for the podcast or for anything, it is because you enjoy it first. If you get the second, it comes out of it. People who go in, I mean, I've had people say over the years, wow, that's so great. You know, maybe doing a podcast will help me find a new job. It's like, it's a lot of work before you might, that might happen. So, and it's not going to come off well if you're not doing it because of the excitement and the interest in the particular project. So I think what you're saying is absolutely right because that's how you can grow it. And I and I do think it's interesting that you've touched on something we talk about a lot here, which is the imposter syndrome. Um, so I think and it's interesting to hear, you know, how, how quickly you know, that you were able to get through it. Um, but, it, you know, I think we all suffer. And sometimes when I have those career challenges or, or thoughts, when something is scary to me, at first I try to get like excited about it, but then otherwise I start to think, What's the worst that can happen? You know, the worst that can happen in a podcast is a bunch of people don't like it. No one listens. That's okay. But I still had the experience. So I, I think it is. I, I do think so many people struggle with the imposter syndrome and it's, it's, it's real. It's uh, but I think when you, when you experience that, right, it's, it's such an isolating feeling as well. And I think it's like knowing that so many other people, um, in fact, Lisa, if you're saying that you experience it from time to time, I'm like, 
it, it's it just is the more that we can kind of normalize that. And I, I think, uh, you know, being genuine about it, you know, I, I do uh, with, with one of my kids, uh, you know, she, she, she did a presentation at school and she told me she was nervous and was like, well, we'll, we'll reframe it. Um, you know, what if you tell yourself that you are excited instead of nervous? Um, that did backfire that when we were skiing earlier this year and uh, she's a much better skier than I am. And I, I told her I was nervous and the, with all sincerity, she was like, well, what if you just tell yourself you're excited? Don't you put my advice back to me? It only goes one way. So uh, uh, maybe maybe that's the other thing I'd, I'd, I'd say is be, be careful with the advice you give. It can come back to on you later, later in life. Yes. Well, my father often says we raise enemies occasionally. Yes. I don't yeah. throw his advice back at him. Like, have you thought about blah, blah, whatever? He's you know, something he said to me my entire time growing up. And he just, we raise enemies. But I think that that's a, you know, it's like skiing. I totally can see that. One of my friend's kids who I started skiing with when he was young and I was really good then now associates me. He's 14 years old, can blow me away. And I was like, let's go here now, Lisa. No that could be my life and then he's like we did you could do this I know you can I'm thinking when did this happen um but with that it's interesting that you were just talking about your daughter because you are a very proud parent and a very proud as they call them now hashtag girl dad um and I guess I wanted to ask you um you know what advice would you give to your to your daughters that might be different than to boys and you know how, what if you think they're going into either ethics and compliance or for any career they want to do? What would be the thing you think could have avoided years of either imposter syndrome or heartbreak or, or your worries or anx- anxiousness? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it's a great question. Yes, so I get, I get three girls and, 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 and one boy. Um, and and it, it, honestly, it, does, it, it, it pains me and annoys me that um, there is, right? There's still so much unequal treatment for, for girls and women, even today. It's 2022, and yet that's still the reality we face. But but also recognize that, you know, my, my son is going to experience tailwinds that my daughters are going to experience as headwinds for no other reason than they were born female. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I see that. And one of the things I, I try to do with my, 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 my kids, you, you know this, Lisa, other people may know, that I am a complete dork. Um, and this is going to sound incredibly dorky what I do, but um, I, I do this every day. It's uh, before they get out of the car, um, I kind of ask my, my kids like a series of questions. I'm like, one of them, like, what is success? And they will tell me every single day is 10% talent, 90% effort. I'm like, what does that mean? It means, you know, keep, keep trying, keep working, keep learning. And, and, and really what I want to do for them is to, to continuously, um, you know, support them to, 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 to kind of self-affirm and internalize you know, who they are. Right. They need to be able to see their value as individuals. They need to be able to see themselves as, as kind of growth, uh, as having like a growth mindset, you know, being able to learn, being able to grow, being able to adapt, to, to, to be resilient. And so I, I use that, uh, you know, for them not to feel like they need to um, be restricted by labels that other people are going to put on them. But, 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 but who are they? How do they find their voice? How do they find their personality, their value? Um, and so that, that's something I really try and do with them is just uh, kind of build them up. Um, and I, I want them to internalize it and know that they are going to face challenges in life. And, you know, you've got to be able to, to, to lean into that. If you come across, you know, headwinds, how do you somehow leverage that to, to make it a tailwind, right? That's what you've got to be able to do. And so I think I'd probably give them like similar advice for ethics and compliance. Um, I do think in ethics and compliance, you know, success it, it, at times, it, it can be 10% talent, 90% effort. It can be a lot of work at times trying to get people on board or you're trying to push an initiative or, you know, so many of us, we operate with small teams. The effort that you have to put into 
um, to, 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 to building and running a successful compliance program, it just takes so much effort, right? You've got to have talents, you've got to have knowledge, you've got to have experience. But I think, you know, recognizing that, you know, inherent talent or, or knowledge, that's not enough, right? That's, uh, you know, how do you make sure that you're communicating with people, that you're actually engaging people? That takes a lot of time and effort to, to really do. And they're going to face a lot of rejection, right? We all face rejection in ethics and compliance. People will push back. We, we deal with, um, you know, emotionally difficult conversations when we conduct uh, internal investigations or, or just other matters that you have to deal with. So, you know, kind of keep keep going, keep learning, and uh, and, and and not giving up is probably the advice I'd give them. Yeah, I think that's great advice. It's interesting as you, you talk about that. Some of the most emotional things for me is even if somebody does something wrong and we are terminating their job for whatever reason, you always think, like you were talking about, about some of the people at Odebrecht earlier, it impacts so many people. It impacts families, friends, others. Um, and really, our impact is, is so real. So I guess one more thing before we close, for those of you who don't know, uh, Adam is also a very accomplished baker. So I always like to ask him what he has most recently made in my continuing attempt to go to an event. Although it may not work out so well with his schedule this time, but so what What have you, what was, you do the birthday cakes too. So I just want to know what the most recent project was. The most recent project, I think it actually wasn't a very, it wasn't anything as, as, as good as the cakes. I did make um, tortillas from scratch recently. Um, surprisingly easy uh, and, and, and none of the kids ate them. So, but that's kind of a norm that uh, if there's sugar and, 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 uh, and icing, then the, the kids will eat it. So um, I don't think, I need to make some more croissants. I know that's on the, uh, the, the, the list and I probably need to do some, some cakes at some point. So uh, you do yeah, the chocolate either. croissants, right? I do chocolate croissants. Yeah, they're 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 good. Croissants are not as hard as people think. Um, mm -hmm. uh, they just they take they take time. But I'm I'm actually not a very good baker. But it's just uh, it's it, I feel like if you give me a recipe to follow and it's it's not too complicated and it doesn't have like forty or more ingredients, I'll probably follow it and do okay with it. So. Yeah, I look for like nine ingredients for the foods that I cook, but um, it's a different topic. But I will say that I and one more sign of diversity. I think this is the first time we've ever discussed cooking or baking on, on the Great Women in Compliance podcast. So I appreciate that you have been here with us as our Scottish baker, but also in all of the great work that you are doing for ethics and compliance. I'm so fortunate that you're part of this community. I am looking forward to speaking. Um, we'll be speaking together about pol uh, policies for humans. Um, I didn't get the title quite right, but basically I'm all about policies for humans right now. And uh, thank you, Adam, on behalf of Mary and me, the Compliance Podcast Network. So thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review. 